0: This morning we're going to continue in our preaching series through the book of Matthew which we started two weeks ago. And this morning we come to the most riveting section of the book which is the genealogies in chapter 1. I'm going to explain what I mean by that here in a moment. But how many of you enjoy a good mystery? Anybody here a fan of mysteries? Mysteries? So mysteries are usually the theme of some of the greatest stories or books or movies that have been produced over the last couple hundred years. And the reason that these are so intriguing to us, the reason that we kind of get sucked into a mystery is because it's something that unfolds. You don't know everything at the beginning. You don't know exactly where it's going. You get little hints and little pictures. And as the character develops, as the story opens up, you get kind of... Angry when the lead character is falsely accused and you rejoice when he's finally set right and the truth is exposed. These are things that really draw in the reader, that really hold our attention and captivate us. Well, genealogies are sort of like a mystery, As we read genealogies, which are lists of ancestry, you could call it lineage, you could call it genealogy, but as we trace lineage out and we find out details and circumstances and events that shaped the character or the life of a certain person. And so, in a way, they are like mysteries. Now, sometimes genealogies get embellished. You know what that word means? expanded, exaggerated, sometimes a family name or a family history can kind of get blown out of proportion. So my last name is Hatfield, okay? So at least two to three times a month when I give my card or license to someone, they say, oh, Hatfield, and the McCoys, <laughs> right? They think this is a big funny thing and we all laugh about it, I'm like, yeah, I never heard that one before. But the, the Hatfield-McCoy lineage, the genealogy, has been embellished. It's been blown up into this huge thing that really just started over farmers and a pig. That's not a very good genealogy. Okay? But in the early church, as Paul is writing his letters to the churches, genealogies were a huge thing. In fact, it was such a problem for people getting sucked into these long lists of family traits and histories that Paul, twice in his writing, warns against getting pulled in to what he calls endless genealogies. Let me give you two quick texts. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. When he writes to Titus, Titus 3.9, he says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So the issue in the early church was that people were spending too much time on the genealogies, the the interesting facts of background and history to the ignorance of the truth of God's word and the apostolic teaching that Paul was sharing with them through Timothy and through Titus. That was the problem. People were too engaged in the subjective, in the kind of ethereal imagining what was going on. Now, in the church in our day, we have the opposite problem. When we come across genealogies in the text... Our eyes sort of glaze over and we we start skimming through all of these things until we get to something that's a little bit more understandable, a little bit more applicable. I mean, if you can't even pronounce the name, how are you supposed to learn anything from it, right? Well, there is great value in genealogies. In the Bible, there are about 25 lists of names like this and none of them are without significance. Everything in the word of God is not only true, but it is good for us, according to 2 Timothy 3, right? So what is the purpose of genealogies in the scripture? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to take a kind of general look at what the purpose genealogies serve, and then we're going to take a specific look at Matthew's genealogy, where we're going to show what is going on here. Now, I'm not saying that this kind of ignorance of genealogies is your faults as churchgoers. The responsibility for teaching the word of God to the people of God has been given to pastors and elders. So it's teachers' fault if we don't understand these things. I mean, when's the last time you heard a good sermon on a genealogy? It's probably been a while, but after this morning, hopefully that answer will change. So as we come to Matthew 1 2 to 17 this morning, we're going to see Matthew reinforce what he stated in his thesis verse, in verse 1. His main point of writing this book is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to David, but primarily to David. And we're going to see this emphasized in a number of ways today. So, would you open your Bibles to the first chapter of Matthew and follow along as I read verses 1 through 17. We'll read the whole section ...just to get it in our context. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar... And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abayud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, there are often times when we come to your word and there are sections of the scriptures that seem uh, disconnected in a way from our experience, from our reality. And yet, because your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, because you have inspired by your spirit through human authorship every word of this book, We understand that these sections are for our good, they're for our education, that we would know you, they're for our exaltation, that we would worship you as a result of what we see in your word. So Father, this morning, we come to this list of names and it may not be obvious as we read through them what the significance of this part is, but I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word now, would you open our understanding. You have promised God to send your Spirit to interpret the Word, to help us understand. So we ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come and brood over this congregation so that we understand the Word of God and how we can benefit from it and exalt the Father through it. This is a lot to ask, but we ask much of a great God who is able to hear and answer our prayers. So Father, we commit this message to you. Give me grace in the preaching. Give my brothers and sisters grace in the listening. And in everything that is said and done this morning, may Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray, amen. So let's start with a general question before we get into the text of Matthew. What is the purpose of genealogies in the Bible? Now, of course, there's a very general purpose, and it's to list out lineage. Yep, that's true. But why does our Heavenly Father see fit to include so many lists of names that seem sort of disconnected at times? And I'm no genealogy expert. This is not like my major in college or anything. I don't even know if that's a major. That'd be kind of strange. Uh, But I tell you what, I learned so much in my study this week, and I came up with three reasons why I think genealogies are in the Bible, and I'm just talking generally. So I'm going to share those with you, and then we'll get into Matthew. So I think it's history, authority, and providence. I think the genealogies are included in the scripture for history, authority, and providence. Let me just briefly explain what I mean by each of those. Genealogy served to inform the reader of the history, the background of a certain person or people group. They traced the lineage, the location, the place of birth, some of the details of that person's life, and often these things were included in public record. Part of Matthew's genealogy that we're going to see in a moment is not found anywhere else in the scripture. It was public record, kind of the equivalent of today's library, where all of these records were stored. And so, these lists of genealogies helped to preserve history, but also to inform the current generation of what had come previous to them. The second thing is that a genealogy helped to reinforce the authority of a certain person. Now, how does that work? What do I mean by that? Well, things were a lot different back then than they are now. That's like the understatement of the year. But you couldn't just go Google somebody if they came in and and claimed to be a certain person or a certain lord or a certain vassal or whatever. You relied on the lineage of that person to determine if they really did have the authority, if they really who they they were, who they said they were. So imagine this. Imagine you live in a a community, a village, and somebody comes in and says, My name is so-and-so, son of so-and-so, and I am the rightful ruler of this land. How do you know? How do you know that that really is? And so the lineage, the genealogy, would provide information like did they come from a good family? Was his father of good reputation? Is there royal blood anywhere in the lineage that would reinforce or prove out the authority that this person is claiming to have? So this is sort of like a very primitive form of the Googler. Right? Because there was no other way to find out information other than that this had been preserved through the genealogy. So, we learn history, we can determine authority of a person, and the third and final thing, this is perhaps the most important, is that genealogies show us the providence of God. We're going to highlight this when we come to the end, especially in Matthew's list, but being able to look back and see how God carried out His plan and His purposes over multiple generations is such a clear demonstration of His guiding hand. We call this His providence as He moves and influences and shapes and directs human history. So as we read the genealogies in the Bible, it's not just list. It's not just throw away, skim it till you're done. They are evidences. That God is sovereign over the history of the world, that he cares about the world, that he has established a plan. We call this the history of redemption. And so as that unfolds, we look at the genealogies and we see how all these things fit together and we say, what a God who does things like this. So that's general, history, authority, and providence. So let's get into our text now, and I'm going to highlight some unique things about Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. We're not going to talk about every name in this list. We're not going to get into every detail. Rather, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump around a little bit, and I'm going to pull out some of the themes, some of the things that I think are important for us to understand the purpose of Matthew writing this section. Why did he include this? Why not just go from verse 1 to verse 18? because he has a very specific purpose for who he's writing to and what he's trying to accomplish through this writing. So let's start by looking at some structural details of Matthew's genealogy. The first thing we notice is that when Matthew starts his list, he starts with Abraham, not Adam. And when I first started studying this, I thought, hmm, that's kind of odd. Because if you're trying to establish that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised deliverer of all humanity, then why not go back all the way to the beginning? Why why start with Abraham? Why not go all the way back to Adam? That's what Luke does in his list. He goes all the way back to Adam. So why does Matthew start right here with Abraham? Well, he does this because he has a different purpose, a different goal in his writing. If you were here last week, we looked at verse 1. And we saw that Matthew's primary purpose is to tell his fellow Jewish readers that Jesus, this Jesus who he's writing of, is the promised Christ, the Messiah. And the way he does this is by emphasizing the connection to David. Abraham's there, but the big thing is David in this writing. So we see him trace the genealogy, starting with Abraham, and then we get down to Judah. And he traces Judah's line, and we know why he does this, because the prophets had foretold that the Messiah would come in the line of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we see the connection to Jesse, David's father, highlighted, because Isaiah 11 says the Messiah is going to be the root of Jesse, or the offspring of Jesse. And then as we come down, Matthew's people that he's writing to would have certainly been familiar with the prophet's. And Micah, which says, we read this around Christmas time, Micah 5, 2, he talks about Bethlehem, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be mounted among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who will be ruler in Israel. So we see the lineage end with Joseph. Where's Joseph from? It's from Bethlehem, in that area. So all the way through this, what Matthew is doing in his structure is emphasizing the Jesus-David-Abraham connection. And his lineage is going to prove this out to help his Jewish readers understand that Jesus was the Christ. You see, Abraham, not Adam, was considered the father of the Jewish people. Okay, in John 8, the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus and they tell him, we have Abraham as our father. He was the head, he was considered the main uh, fountainhead, if you will, for the Jewish people. So Matthew, in writing this thing, doesn't go back because it wouldn't have made a lot of sense for him to go all the way back to Adam. It would have been more significant for him to do what he does and go to Abraham, who is considered to be the father of all the Jewish people. Now, there's one other structural thing that Matthew does to reinforce this Jesus David connection, especially. And I thought this was really interesting. He uses a literary tool called a gematria. And I'll explain what that is in a second. Maybe you've read Matthew 1 before, like we just did this morning. And verse 17, look at verse 17 again with me, if you would. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And you might say, well, that's kind of coincidental that it's all 14. That works out pretty well. And you might wonder, what is this guy's deal with the number 14? Why is this such a big emphasis for him? Especially when, like I did this week, you start getting into all these things and you figure out, wait a minute. There's a lot more than 14 there's some, there's some gaps here. Matthew left some things out. For example, if we compare the lineage in Matthew 1, which we're looking at this morning, to what Luke records in Luke chapter 3, we see Matthew uses 42 names, okay? 14 plus 14 plus 14, it's 42. Luke, recording the same genealogy for the same person, uses 77 names, well, that's weird. What's going on? That is a huge difference for two guys recording the same genealogy. So what's going on here? here? Is there contradictions in the Bible? Is there something spooky going on? No. No, there's no contradiction in the Bible. There's nothing spooky going on. There's a couple of reasons for this and it gets back to Matthew's primary reason for writing and you're gonna notice and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hammer that this morning because I want us to understand why Matthew is doing what he's doing. If we don't understand what he's doing, it's going to make no sense to us. So I'm going to hammer this as we go through the genealogies. So Matthew, like I said, is using something called gematria. Now gematria is the Jewish literary tool that assigns numeric value to every letter in their alphabet. Okay, So every letter in the Jewish or the Hebrew alphabet has a numeric value. This is not some kind of spooky secret code. It's it's right there on the surface. It's how they communicated certain things, certain messages in the text. So Matthew, being a Jew and knowing this and writing to Jewish people, uses this. He does something really interesting. The name David in Hebrew is three letters. And the three letters of the name David have a numeric value of four, six, and four respectively, totaling Fourteen. So the numeric value of the number 14, or of David's name, is 14. I say this not to confuse you or just babble on, but when the Jewish readers read this list, this genealogy, and especially in verse 17, when they see 14, 14, 14, what they are seeing is David, David, David. Matthew is using every resource at his disposal to solidify the connection that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one God promised and foretold to David in 2 Samuel 7. And so he uses not only the lineage itself, but he uses tools within the lineage to emphasize this connection to Jesus. And this helps I think, as we read the genealogy. It helps us understand what's going on here. Because Matthew's purpose in the genealogy is to establish Jesus as the Messiah. It is not to establish a timeline. Okay, we shouldn't come to Matthew 1 and read the genealogy with the purpose of trying to figure out the exact lifespan or timeline or whatever of all these kings and things. That wasn't Matthew's point. And it shouldn't be our point either. Also, the difference in number of names. So remember I said 42 in Matthew, 77 in Luke. This can be attributed to the fact that the word father or the verb form fathered can be used not only to refer to someone's dad, their immediate predecessor, but also in terms of was the ancestor of or I am the descendant of. So we know that. It's used that way. Look at verse 8. Of Matthew chapter one, I'm going to give you an example of how Matthew does this. Verse eight says, "Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah." Well, Joram was not Uzziah's dad. In fact, there were three kings between Joram and Uzziah. So, how can Matthew say, "Yep"? This is how it went. Joram and Uzziah, they're connected. He was his dad. He was the father of. Well, he's using the term father in terms of was the ancestor of. So we can't get thrown off by these things. We shouldn't come to the text and say, oh, there's something spooky going on here. We need to understand what is called authorial intent. What did Matthew intend to do as he is writing his gospel? And when we can understand that, it will serve us in our understanding of the rest of the book. He's not doing anything wrong. He's still tracing the line of Jesus all the way from Judah down to David down to Jesus. So those are a couple of the unique sort of structural things that Matthew does. And now let's spend the rest of our time looking at some of the content of this genealogy. And by content, of course, I mean people. (laughs) And this is probably the hardest part of my preparation this week because... every person on this list is significant in some way. Every person plays a key role in the development of how the Messiah is going to come into the world. But I don't think our time is going to be well spent if I just go through the list and say, well, this guy did this, and then this happened, and he died, and then this person did that. Rather, what I want to do is I want to point out a couple of the oddities We can get the general sense of what's going on here. We know how descendants work. We know how this person fathered this person and they came to power. I think we kind of generally understand that. But I want to point out a couple of things that are unique to Matthew's list here and explain why this is such a big deal. One of the most striking features of this genealogy compared to any other, even compared to Luke's, is that Matthew includes women in his genealogy. As you look at this, you will notice that there are four women mentioned in this list. It would have been almost unheard of at this point in history to include women, let alone four of them, five if you count Mary, in a kind of list that is proving out who someone is. It just doesn't happen. And there are two really interesting things about all four of these women. So here's what I want to talk about. First, we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Those are the four that are included in this list. The first thing is is that they were all, in some way or another, involved with or associated with sexual immorality. All of them have some kind of tie to something icky that happened with them. Genesis 38 tells the sordid tale of Judah as he marries off his sons, he finds wives for them. Well, one of his sons dies, and he had married a woman named Tamar. So Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Okay, And through deception and betrayal, she becomes pregnant with twins through her father-in-law. Gross. Okay, And as a result of this, one of those twins, Perez, is the one God chooses to continue the Judite line all the way down to David. But it happens through immorality. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. And she comes to be a God-fearer through hiding the Israelite spies that came in when they were gonna capture the city. But she's engaged in all kinds of stuff. The scandal of Ruth is less obvious. But we see her approach Boaz in the middle of the night, which is totally inappropriate, climb under his covers, trying to kind of seal the deal for this marriage thing. That's not appropriate. Bathsheba commits adultery with David, which results in the birth of Solomon, who then carries on David's line all the way down to Joseph. This is really strange. Why? Are these kinds of details included in a genealogy of the Messiah? Another interesting detail: all four of these women are Gentiles. It says in the book of Genesis, Judah chose wives from among the daughters of Canaan. Tamar is a Canaanite, she's a foreigner. Rahab, <coughs> obviously a Gentile being from Jericho. Ruth is a Moabite, <coughs> excuse me, who marries into the clans of Israel through Naomi's sons. Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite. Association meaning she is also a Gentile as well. So, why? Why does Matthew include four Gentile women who are wrapped up in sexual immorality in one way or another and have colorful backgrounds? Why does he include these in the lineage of the Messiah? Start with the Gentile thing. I think the Gentile thing is pretty clear, and I hope that you're tracking with me on this too. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is going to be the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but of the whole world, right? This is made explicit as the early church is born and the apostolic teaching takes root and it explodes into the world. So, by sharing that in Jesus' lineage there is Gentile blood, it prefigures what is going to happen when the salvation that Jesus accomplishes goes beyond ethnic Israel to the whole world. So, we see in this inclusion, it is a universal salvation. Jesus is able to be the Savior of all people because He comes from all peoples. There is Gentile blood. In his lineage, we can kind of think of this the same way as, remember in Hebrews, when it says that we have a merciful high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he became like us? Well, Jesus can be the savior of all people because he became like all people and he comes from that. Does that make sense? So I think this detail is included in Matthew's genealogy because he is foreshadowing the global effect that the gospel of Jesus Christ will have in the world. It is not reduced, it is not limited to a small group of people, but it is universal to save all peoples. Now, as far as the sexual sin goes, this scandal... And we need to be careful here because I am not saying that God approves of all of this. we got to have a category in our head to see God using and working through the sinful actions of men without he himself approving what's going on. So just because the Bible records things that are true and accurate does not mean that is God's stamp of approval on the action. You tracking with me so far? So i got to be careful. I am not saying that this was like God loved that it happened this way. But there's a reason why it happened this way. So here's my thought. and You can talk to me afterwards if you think this is way off. I think that the inclusion of this detail as, as uncomfortable as it is to talk about, to read, to recognize, prepares us. I think it's preparatory. And the the sexual misgiving, the impropriety that happens in the lineage prepares us to meet a young virgin girl named Mary who suddenly finds herself in the middle of a scandal. She's pregnant with no husband. So all of these things that are happening in Jesus' line are pointing, pointing, pointing. They're preparing us to see what happens. And when we get to the next section, when we read about what happens and what's going on with Mary, when we consider the line that Jesus comes from, we should just smile and say, isn't that like God? Isn't that like God? To use the most unlikely candidate to accomplish his purposes, to bring about his plan, to take the sinfulness, the failure of humankind, and to use it to fulfill his purpose. Who does that? God does that. And these things are in the genealogy. They are included here so that we are prepared for when Jesus comes. You know what we should think when we read this, with all this sin and this nastiness? Nothing stops God's plan. Nothing. Nothing. There is no action that humankind can take that will put the brakes on what God has planned to do. Nothing. And maybe there are those of us in this room who have sexual failure in our past or in our life right now. I think one of the applications of this text is to remind us that God can redeem that. It's not that he approves of it. It's sin and it must be confessed and laid down at the foot of the cross. But it does not have to define you. It does not disqualify you from being used by God. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and will forgive you. That's one of the things that this passage teaches us. God uses all kinds of people. And of course, the entire genealogy is full of sin. (laughs) It's not just the women. Everyone in this list failed in one way or another to keep the law of God. Everyone failed to walk in righteousness and holiness before the Lord, which is why the announcement of a Savior was and is such good news. We're going to see next week the angel telling Joseph, when this baby comes... This baby that's turning everyone's cheeks red because they're embarrassed to talk about it. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What a tremendous announcement that all of the sin in the past, all of the nastiness that's wrapped up in this coming of the Messiah, he is going to save his people. So we have a kind of contrasting view as we look at the line that Jesus comes from, the sin, the failure, the shortcoming wrapped up in that, and then we have Christ, perfect, Son of God, Son of Man who lives out the requirements of God's people so that he can save them from that sin. What a blessing and what a plan of God. I'm going to close by sharing just three observations, three things that Matthew shows us about God. Now, it's one thing to look at this list and to point out all of the quirkiness and the situations and things surrounding the human characters of this list and what they did and how they were great or how they were bad. That's one thing. That's important. But mostly what we need to see is what does this passage tell us about God? It's far more significant than understanding the different character traits of these people here. And this is what I think is most important for us to know. Three things. First, Jesus' genealogy shows us God's providence on display. We mentioned this at the beginning. In general, well, now I'm applying it to Matthew's list. As we consider the span of time from Abraham to David to Christ, it is unmistakable that we can see the hand of God working over all of those decades. Yes, millennia. As we look at the details, I mean, down to things like so-and-so moving to this area, this village. Why'd they do that? I don't know. At the time, they probably thought the farming land was better. It was better for livestock. What was really going on is God is moving them so that his plan can come to fruition. You say, well, what is providence? Providence is, this is Jacob's definition, providence is the outworking of the sovereignty of God. Because God is sovereign, he acts in providence. He works out his control, his oversight of all things. So as we look at the genealogy and we see God directing and acting and willing. We call that acting and directing and willing his providence. It just simply means the way in which he works, the making visible of his sovereignty and his power. And what a clear demonstration of this in the genealogy of Jesus. Who else but an all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God could not only plan all of this out and make this detailed uh, plan for what's going to happen, but he sees to it that it's accomplished. Who does that? (laughs) You and I can't do that. I don't remember the last time I made a plan and it went the way that I thought it would go. Amen? There you go. But God never has that happen. The things that he plans, the things that he puts into place always come to pass because he is always good And everything that he does is according to his will. So in this genealogy, we see the workings out of the providence of God. Second thing, Jesus' genealogy shows us God's worldwide or global mission. I mentioned this with the Gentile inclusion here, but I'm just going to push into this a little bit more because I think it's really significant. The mixed ancestry of Jesus' line... um, sets us on a trajectory, and the end of that trajectory is Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, right? So we look back, and we see the inclusion of Gentiles mixed mixed in there. It's all kind of blurred up a little bit. Well, that points us forward to Matthew 28 when Jesus says to his disciples, all authority, In heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of three nations that's in the message what he really says is go and make disciples of all nations why because he is a universal global Savior And the salvation that he accomplished, the gospel, the good news that he brings is not only for one people group. It is for everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So we see this global purpose of God in the genealogy of Jesus with the inclusion of these Gentile women who are in Jesus' line. Third, finally, Jesus' genealogy shows us that God chooses Unlikely people to accomplish his plan. And I think this might be the most encouraging of these three things for us. I mentioned this before, but I mean, would you and I ever make a plan like this? When we consider the global significance of the coming of the Son of God, would you and I plan things out so that it is dependent upon weakness, failure, and sin? No. We're kind of a choose the cream of the crop kind of a people. It's not how God works. He chooses the most unlikely people because He delights in demonstrating His strength compared to human strength. You know that? God delights in using the underdog, the weak, and yes, the sinful, to accomplish his purpose. We see it in the genealogy, through all of the failure of those people. We see it in Jesus' ministry. Look at who he chooses to be his disciples. When Jesus is choosing those who are going to take this gospel to the four corners of the world, he does not go to the synagogue first. He doesn't choose the most qualified on paper the ones who have the extensive lineage and degrees and paperwork to go with them, he chooses unlikely people. <laughs> Fishermen, doubters, tax collectors. These are not cream of the crop. This is bottom of the barrel from a human perspective. So why does he do this? Because God delights to show his power. He delights and takes pleasure in the demonstration of his Power and it doesn't stop with the disciples, even now, God loves to show his power and goodness through our weakness. Paul says this, First Corinthians 1 But God chose that is intentionally on purpose, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, to shame, the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast before God. You, do you identify with any of those words at times? Foolish? Weak? Low? Despised? You ever feel like that? Let me tell you something this text this genealogy tells us that those things do not disqualify you for being used by God God is not looking for the degree he is not looking for the education he is not looking for the qualification necessarily he is looking for those who know their position before him who know their weakness, who know their limitations, and who are willing to be used by God. God takes great delight in this. So if you you consider yourself unfit for service, whether because of past failure, you don't feel qualified, you don't have the right degree, remember this text. Remember how God brought about the birth of his son through foolishness, weakness, being despised and take courage not only can God use you but he delights to use you because in him using you and me unlikely candidates it displays his glory and his grace in a unique way so take heart this is what the genealogy of Jesus tells us among other things and I think this is a great encouragement for us So, next time you come to a genealogy, remember, God is at work. He is at work accomplishing His purposes. There is great significance, even if you don't understand every single detail, that's okay. But be reminded that God works all things according to His will. Let's pray together. What a wonderful reminder, Father. What a wonderful reminder that you have established things in such a unique way. And it just highlights your power and your glory and your supremacy over all things. None of us in this room would have planned the coming of the Messiah like this. No one. But you work through weakness. You use failure. And it gives us great hope, Lord. Not not that we can just disengage and unplug and assume, oh, God will use this either way. No, we should be motivated by the fact that you use us despite our weaknesses, despite our feelings of inadequacy. And I praise you, Lord, that you establish things this way. I praise you that Christ came in humility from a mixed lineage, Because it gives us hope that the gospel can come to us. That the salvation that Jesus brings with him is available for us. So God, press this word into our hearts now this morning. I am sure that there are people here who have not yet surrendered their will and their heart and their life to you. Maybe being held up by some thing in their past, some sin. Father, break through that this morning by the power of your spirit and through your word and draw your children to yourself. Lord, for those of us who know you, who can call you Father, would you strengthen and encourage our hearts as we so often feel inadequate in the things you've called us to do, but help us to remember that you will work through our weakness, through our inadequacies, so that you receive maximum glory.